0: Standard issue for all women. Hello and happy New Year to you. Jen here to tell you about this week's episode. You might have been expecting the usual pod scene today, and if that was the case, I do apologise. But even superheroes need multi-denominational holidays, and by superheroes, I mean us. We'll be back next week with all of your standard issue faves, rated or dated, the bush telegraph, sexism of the week, and of course. Jenny off the blocks. But you're not going away empty-handed this week. Coming up at the weekend, Mick chats to podcaster, comedian, actor and all-round lovely human, Carrie Lloyd, about her incredible new book, You Are Not Alone, which is based on her award-winning podcast, Griefcast, and is... About grief. But before then, right now, in fact, I've got a special New Year's inspired chops for you. As your social media feed gets ready to do an absolute number on you in terms of guilt around festive overindulgence, it's worth bearing in mind that a lot of it is. bollocks so i jumped on the zoom to chat to journalist rena Raphael about her new book the gospel of wellness jim's guru's goop and the false promise of self-care which unpicks the multi-trillion dollar movement of as the title suggests wellness that is a lot of money right and what does wellness even mean over to you rena i hope you enjoy listening to her as much as i enjoyed chatting to her I'm joined by journalist and author of the new book, The Gospel of Wellness, Jim's Guru's Goop and the False Promise of Self-Care, Reena Raphael. Hello, Rena.
1: Hi, excited to be here.
0: Thank you very much for joining me. I mean, it is a fascinating and ever topical issue to discuss. Can you tell me a little bit about the book and what prompted your interest in, in the subject matter?
1: I am a journalist who covered the wellness industry for the last six years, but apart from just being a reporter on this topic, I myself was, I guess you could say, a wellness addict, um, which is one of the reasons I started covering this industry. So I tried every boutique gym, every sort of cleanse, detox. You know, I only shopped according to ingredients I were told were non-toxic. I mean, you name it, I tried it. I went on all the retreats, tried all the products. And I had a question a couple of years in. Number one, is any of this working? Is it making us better and healthier? And also, um, why? Why are so many women consumed with the pursuit of health? Why are we doing all these things? And why is it majority women? And then lastly, I started noticing troubling trends, not just with myself, but with all of my friends. And as a reporter, I had access to All the CEO and funders of all of these companies, Peloton, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, biohacking founders, and the more I spoke to them and the more I got access to their business plans, their marketing plans, the more I had to realize that a lot of this was pseudoscientific and just built on exaggerated claims.
0: In what capacity did you cover it? Were you a lifestyle writer? Did you approach it with any kind of cynicism or were you just sort of like reporting on stuff that people could do, basically?
1: Well, about 10 years ago when I was a reporter at NBC News, I covered more of the lifestyle beat, So I covered mm-hmm. it more from, you know, look at these trends or people are into this and that or yeah. there's this fun new gym that's opening. But then I became a, a business journalist. For fast company magazine and i started covering the wellness industry from a business perspective Mm -hmm. Um, so sometimes there was cynicism but i'll say this in a lifestyle capacity you care more about sort of the consumer's reaction and getting them excited about the next big thing right and this is sort of how we treat wellness like fashion right we care less about the science and more just like but have you heard of this and how do you get consumers to buy the next best thing and From a business perspective, it was more about market growth. Do they have an interesting advertising campaign? How are they getting more customers? So in both of those, there was a little bit of cynicism, but not enough. And that's one of the points of the book is that I don't think the media is doing its due diligence as to whether there's actual scientific evidence behind all these fads. Not to mention that we basically add on additional pressures, right? We're telling women they have to buy these exact ingredients so that they don't get sick. They have to do all X, Y, Z to lead a healthy life. And women already have a calendar filled to the brim with stuff that they need to do for their family, for their work. So we're just adding more and more burdens.
0: So I want to start with a sort of basic point, but I think it's going to be hard to answer, Rena. What is wellness?
1: You know, that's the number one question that uh, people ask me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think it's testament to how out of control this industry has become that people can no longer define it. Um, I would say at its most basic level, wellness is the pursuit of well-being outside the realm of medicine. So basically everything that medicine and insurance won't touch. So it's all the ways we could physically, mentally, or spiritually feel better. And that could mean, you know, everything from nutrition and fitness to sleep and stress management. The term wellness is general and vague. You know, There's no one who can agree on what well is. We can't even agree on what healthy is, which is why this industry has been able to grow so big. It has over a dozen subsectors and you could keep shoving more and more products and things underneath its umbrella. You know, Now I see headlines like Botox is wellness, real estate is wellness. I mean, anything mm. can be wellness, right? Because if the definition is just, it makes you feel better then the sky is basically the limit. So this is why as a marketing term, you see the term wellness applied to everything from let's say activated charcoal toothpaste to mindfulness. And it's why ridiculous products like CBD infused leggings are now using that branding <laughs> oh, term. Gosh. <laughs> right? And and the problem is is that when something can mean anything, it starts to mean nothing.
0: Yeah. So is it the same as I don't know, is is the concept of wellness sort of the same as the concept of self-care, for example?
1: Yes, they're used a little bit differently. And I think self-care has also come to mean more of pampering, to some degree. It's usually associated with spa goodies or skincare masks or a manicure, which, you know, it's kind of funny if you look up the history of that term self-care, which came from much more radical, political and community organizing roots. But now it just means, oh, you have to go to Sephora and buy a whole bunch of things and take a (laughs) bubble bath.
0: Yeah, because like the idea of self-care, like, you know, that could mean anything from like therapy to painting your nails.
1: Right. It's also become just as ambiguous. And One of the issues I have with the term self-care, or just, I guess I should reframe that, the way the messaging is infused to the average audience is that it's all on you to calm yourself down, right? Self-care has become highly individualistic and hyper-consumerist. So if you're stressed out or you can't keep up with modern life, then it's on you To go buy all these spa goodies, take a bubble bath, do a bunch of yoga, instead of actually looking at the root issues of why you're so stressed. Maybe it's because, you know, here in America, we don't have adequate childcare policies, maternity benefits, time off. There's all these things that are missing. And instead, this industry says, oh, are are you freaking out? you really should do more yoga. And it's almost patronizing. It's almost <laughs> mm. like gaslighting women.
0: The basic principle behind wellness and self-care, these all sound like good things, right? Like we're we're trying to stay well, we're trying to look after ourselves, but it does seem a bit silly. Given like the vagueness and the broadness of the term, it does seem a bit silly to assert, for example, that a tracksuit could somehow be life-changing. I'm interested in the point that you made that you became more cynical about these things at the point at which you started reporting on this from a business angle. Because this is a huge business, right?
1: Right. And I make the distinction between real wellness and the commodified version that's taken over it, right? So it's a nuanced book. It's not saying that, you know... Fitness or getting proper sleep or meditation is bad for you. Absolutely not. I'm not making that claim. I'm saying the way it's being sold to us is problematic, that the wellness industry as an industry is unwell. That's my point. And exactly, you're told that you have to buy very specific things that are usually quite costly or go to extreme lengths or do all this extra work to quote unquote be healthy. And I don't think it's necessarily true, especially when health and well-being is so individualized. What works for me might not work for you, but we're never told that. We're always constantly told we have to buy and do all of these things. And I think it's stressing women out. I don't think it's helping.
0: Apart from the fact that it is a huge business, apart from the fact that it is, in a lot of ways, completely unscientific, apart from the fact that it is stressing people out, from a health perspective, there can also be quite Massive consequences, right? of following this kind of wellness path, because what it means is that people are looking to unscientific solutions to scientific problems, right?
1: Sometimes, yes, this could lead them down to uh, down a slippery path of chemophobia or anti-vax. I mean, it could lead to a whole host of problems. I myself got disordered eating, I was afraid of my grocery aisle. Mm. I mean definitely. But what I wanted to explore in the book, and I think this is equally important, is why this is happening. Why are people going down this path? Why are they shunning their doctors and instead listening to influencers like Gwyneth Paltrow? And, you know, it's not just one reason. I give a couple of reasons. But one of the most striking ones that I found was that a lot of women feel unheard, mistreated or ignored by medicine. This could be mm-hmm. in their doctor's office or they just don't have solutions for chronic conditions. And there are numerous reasons for that that I get into in the book, including for the fact that a lot of women's medical research is underfunded. And so when they feel like they're not being treated well, when they feel like they're not getting what they want, that leaves a window open for a competitor to come in. And in swooped an industry that promised them solutions, unlike your doctor who will say, well, you have a 30% chance Mm -hmm. this might work, here came all these influencers saying, this tonic, this pill, this supplement, it will definitely cure you of your problem. And that's really enticing. And so I think when we talk about how to address women's needs we have to also talk about the root issues of why they're
0: dissatisfied. I completely agree with you and we talk about that kind of thing a lot on the podcast about, you know, there's, there is a lack of research about women's health. It's perceived, certainly in the UK, that there's a lot of misogyny within the medical profession, that women are treated as hysterical, that their problems aren't listened to. Women's pain is often kind of ignored or dismissed and instead they're told that they have psychological problems for example you know it's all in their head they're imagining it we're not that far away from the kind of wandering wombs of the olden days so i find that really interesting but i wonder how that is different also in the u.s where the the medical system is very different to the system here? Is it something that people approach the wellness industry? Because although it's expensive to buy, I don't know, goop vitamin supplements or whatever, and I'll I'll come back to goop in a minute, but it's less expensive potentially than paying for healthcare.
1: Right. That's part of it. It is cost. It's also a matter of availability. Mm. If you are someone who is working two jobs and taking care of your kids, you sometimes don't even necessarily have the time to go to the doctor. Right, it's much easier to just you know fire up your Instagram, find an influencer, they're promising you something, and just purchase whatever it is they're selling to you. There is a bunch of different reasons about what is missing in the American U.S. healthcare system, and you know also people are influenced by pharmaceutical scandals. I mean it's multifactorial. There is no one exact reason. Mm. I go into some of the reasons uh, in the book. And listen, a lot of these influencers connect more with their audience, right? I don't know a lot of people who follow doctors no. or their or, or have any relationship mm. with their doctors, right? You go into a doctor's office, at least here in America, you get, mm. I think, an average of 16 to 17 minutes. Usually you're interrupted at minute seven versus, you know, some influencer who, again, promises you the world, who's updating their, you know, their account several times a day. Better yet, they can interact with you. You can DM them questions. So- That's another advantage that I would say that the influencer community in the wellness industry has over medicine. Doctors don't have time to be on social media. And, you know, I make the case that, you know, let's say some guru wrote a book 20 years ago, that book waited for you to have, you know, 10, 15 minutes when you're free before bedtime to read it. It's totally different now. People are checking their phones constantly. These people have constant access to you. Your doctor doesn't.
0: I'm really interested in the point that you made before about the, the kind of disordered eating angle of the, the wellness industry. I think there's a lot of that going on, right? You
1: know, my book covers more of the wellness industry fads like clean eating, detoxes, mm, cleanses, yeah. which is basically just diet culture masquerading as a new buzzword. But more or less, I saw a, many women who were just exhausted their whole lives they're being pushed for diets or every day there's some new headline in the media about like coffee's good for you, no coffee's bad for you, eggs are good for you, no they're not bad for you. Women have been driven absolutely bonkers by all these food guidelines and they keep searching for a new protocol that will make them feel better um, and oftentimes it's just kind of grazing and putting hope in the next best thing. Or they just kind of forfeit and say, okay, I give up, just tell me what to do already. You have a diet plan. You have an eating protocol. Okay, fine. I'll just follow it. So I find a lot of exhaustion with women, and it does sometimes come from disordered eating. And listen, if you've been following diets since you've been 15, all these food rules, they linger in the back mm, of your head. Yeah. You know, I, I know myself that I went on Atkins when I was 18, and to this day, I am terrified of bread. Yeah, me too. For some reason, at that age, they made me so scared of bread. Uh-huh. And the funny thing is is that I'll go to a restaurant and I'll order mac and cheese I'll order dessert ice cream, but i'm I won't eat the bread and you know my husband will say, Rina, that's just crazy. You can have the bread, but I was made so terrified of it, so i don't eat I really don't eat bread anymore, which is nuts." And, and sad because bread is delicious. Right? <laughs> it is delicious. And I have it in small amounts and I always think of it as like a treat. But again, I could eat a whole carton of ice cream. It makes no sense. Oftentimes, a lot of these food rules that are embedded in the back of our heads don't make any sense to us. But oh, yeah. You can't fight them.
0: 100%. I mean, I am a 40-year-old woman who is scared of carbs, Right. And and I spent most of my adult life being scared of carbs up until the point, basically, that I got pregnant. And now I just, I'm just resigned to (laughs) to eating when and and what I can with a toddler. But yeah, it's, it's mad. It does. It really stays with you, doesn't it? It is so pervasive. But like, for example, when I graduated from university, I'd put on, you know, a, a little bit of weight in my final year, as people often do, and I wanted to lose it and I had this really kind of like you know I cut out dairy, I cut out gluten, I cut out caffeine, I did this that and the other blah 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 blah. and it did not occur to me at all at the time but afterwards I was just like okay I was going through quite a difficult time in my life and I was just like okay that was not really anything to do with wanting to lose weight that was about control but all of these little fads that you hear about oh this is good for you that's good for you blah that's bad for you do this do that they make it so easy in a way do you think
1: sometimes yeah sometimes i feel like it's almost like subscribing to a uniform right Mm. where you just have to follow these rules and you'll be okay And oftentimes this industry does prey on women's fears. And so they're made terrified of toxins and everything and and their produce. If it's not organic, they're going to give them and their kids cancer. I mean, there's a lot of fear mongering going on as well that women naturally respond to. And I mean, none of these tactics are new. In the book, I give examples of how this goes back like over a hundred years of making women terrified of ingredients mm. and, and if they want to be good mommies, then they have to do X, Y, Z. So that's part of it. And as you mentioned, it, it is to some degree part of this pursuit of control, which is one of the theses of my book. All of this, right, is women trying to regain control. And oftentimes it is an illusion, right? But I understand it, right? When a lot of, especially in modern life, when so much feels chaotic and when so much seems fearful, I mean, people also see headlines about the food supply or scandals at McDonald's and whatnot. This is a way to feel like you're doing your best to secure, you know, your fortress Mm. of food.
0: I do want to talk about Goop for a minute because, I mean, of course, how, how could I not? For those who don't know, Goop is Gwyneth Paltrow's, I don't know, is it a lifestyle brand? Is that how she describes it? I've actually been on the website today looking at it. People in this country particularly will be, I, I'm not sure what the the news stories have been in the US, probably very similar, but people in this story will know things like, you know, the, the vaginal steaming and, and, and stuff like mm. that, that and, and things like that that kind of made the headlines mostly because of the ridiculousness of them and partly because they were... Then, you know, massively discredited by actual scientists who said, this is really not good for you, by the way. So in the Goop Wellness Shop, just to give an example of how kind of like vast the category of wellness is, they sell sex toys, tools and devices. So like a massage gun, or I particularly liked a gemstone heat therapy mat, which retails at $1,049. Bargain. For uh, I don't know, I don't I don't know what the gemstones are for. Um, vitamins, for example, you can get a high school jeans supplement for um, seventy five dollars a month, which apparently help to speed up metabolism. And there's workout accessories and aromatherapy. So there's quite a lot going on there, and some of that to me seems a bit bonkers. I mean, she's laughing at us all, right? Yes and no. She does specifically do
1: outrageous trends and outrageous products because it gets her press attention. Mm -hmm. And the press attention doesn't hurt her. No. She actually thrives off it. And to be honest, she doesn't believe in half the stuff. And she's admitted as much to some degree. You know, I think she has a famous quote on Jimmy Kimmel where she says, like, I don't even know what the F we're doing or what the F we talk about. And I've been to, I think, four of her conferences. Mm -hmm. It's very tongue in cheek and her audience doesn't necessarily always take her that seriously either. Um, when I was at this conference and I was uh, interviewing her fans, they were like, oh yeah, we know half of this is bonk, but it's kind of fun. It's kind of entertaining. And, and I think that's another aspect that, of wellness right now that it's treated like this entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're a lab rat and like, oh, let's try this. Let's try that. You know what? Like, this is what I mean by that. We're treating it like fashion. Now at the same time, Gwyneth does propel certain ideas that are dangerous and are pseudoscientific, like uh, adrenal fatigue, which is not recognized by the medical establishment. And this is where she has greater influence on general women's media or the wellness industry, where she does sort of legitimize uh, very bad ideas. So I don't (laughs) want to say she's completely harmless. Mm. She does have an effect. But at the same time, I think the media often see some of her outrageous items and they think that she's serious about it. And she's just not. She's just a brilliant, brilliant marketer.
0: So leading on from that, and, and particularly the high school jeans, vitamin supplement that I mentioned, do you think that the wellness industry is really supposed to make us well? Or do you think it's supposed to make us youthful? Because there is a difference between those two things. And the majority of this is aimed at women.
1: I will say this. The wellness industry is twofold. It preys on our deepest desires and our vulnerabilities. And you'll see this sort of uh, map out in two ways. So number one, there's a lot of fear-mongering, right, of toxins. And if you don't work out every day, there's a lot, a lot of making women afraid of everything. And when you're made fearful, well, that inspires a purchase. You have Mm -hmm. to buy our product. Ours is a safe product. You have to come to our gym. You have to come do our thing. And then the second is, is that it ties health To an aspirational lifestyle. Yeah. Right. And this is where they target youthfulness, beauty, thinness, all the things that women have been bred to want. So, those are those two things. And I'll say, lastly, like overall, as an industry, wellness is doing a lot more. It's providing purpose, meaning, guidance, identity, and I would say the most important, community. A lot of times people join the Goop community or join a gym or join all these fads or Facebook groups because they're lonely or they're new moms who are looking for advice or they're college kids who are just, you know, looking for someone to tell them how to live their lives. There's a lot more built in that I don't think people realize that is providing some sort of comfort to people. And I don't want to dismiss that, especially in the United States where women really, really feel isolated. And it's not because they don't have friends. You know, I have all the time a bunch of friends who say, oh, my plans got canceled for dinner. Oh, thank God. What they're saying is not that I don't want to see my friend. Mm-hmm. What they're saying is, is I am so exhausted. Yeah, I cannot keep up with taking care of my kids and working a full-time job <laughs> that I don't have time to see my friends. And so what do all these gyms do? What do all these communities do? They promise them, I will give you a community. It'll be built right in. I think that's a really vital aspect that goes ignored. How much people are yearning for community and social support.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that's hard relate as the as the mother of a two two and a half year old. If someone like cancels their plans with me, that's almost like my favorite thing to happen now, is when someone right. cancels dinner. <laughs> and and half. you
1: know, I had a. I spoke to a lot of people who were telling me that they were treating their gym instructor almost like a therapist or a pastor, Mm. right? When they were going through a divorce or there was a family death or they were having some sort of issue at work, they went to their yoga instructor. Mm. And I started looking up sort of the history of the professionalization of giving and taking of advice. And, you know, it used to be back in the day. You used to have these large, large families, right? You had many siblings, many cousins, aunts and uncles. You lived maybe in a village. You had neighbors. When you were debating what to do uh, with a significant other, you just went to someone that you knew. But now we're so isolated, right? We don't have people right next door. Our family is all scattered everywhere. We don't have time to see people. And so we either have to hire a therapist or, in some women's cases, go to their yoga instructor. And that's kind of the tragedy of modern life, at least here in the States. We're very, very lonely.
0: Yeah, I think that is definitely something that translates into different countries as well. It's sort of like there's, there's almost like so much around you and yet so much of it feels, I guess, like insubstantial. Do you know what I mean? There's so much social media and blah, blah, blah and this and that and whatever. But it kind of, yeah, it's just a bit surface level, I guess.
1: And I think people can also even find community by following an influencer on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where I don't mock people for what they're getting out of the wellness industry. I have a lot, a lot of empathy.
0: As someone who is obviously a bit of an expert in the industry, you've you've reported on it for many years, you've written this book and you see positives in it as well as the obvious negatives. So you do think there are things that the wellness industry are, is providing. So I'm as vulnerable as anyone, to all of this, right? I I love the promise of something for almost nothing because that is what a lot of wellness brands are promising us, right? Like, take these vitamins and you won't have to go to the gym. It will almost, like, negate the actual need to do something which is actually scientifically healthy. It's like a quick fix sort of thing. But I presume in terms of, like, trying to figure out what is valuable and what isn't, The age-old Adage must surely apply here, right? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is?
1: Yeah, most definitely. And I think once people can understand that so much of wellness is built on belief, they'll start to view it differently. Meaning... Even just the act of putting a vitamin in our shopping cart gives Mm -hmm. us that boost of self-efficacy. Like, look at me. I'm on my health journey. And this is what I mean by, you know, kind of the title of my book, Mm -hmm. which is kind of tongue-in-cheek that it's comparing wellness to religion in the sense that it's offering a regulatory framework telling us how to live, right? And so once you start seeing what this industry is about, I think you start to pause a bit more before going all in on the trends, or believing the marketing claims, and you know, I do have at the back of the book some tips on what to keep in mind before you fall for the next big fad. Mm-hmm. But I, I do see a wiser consumer. I think, especially coming out of the pandemic, when there was such an emphasis on health and misinformation, I think the tide is
0: starting to turn, just a little bit. Well, fingers crossed, Reina. The Gospel of Wellness is published on January the fifth in the UK by Profile Books. Where can we follow you to keep up to date with what you're doing?
1: I'm on Twitter and I also have a newsletter called Well To Do on Substack. And what's your Twitter handle? It's Reens, it's three R's I N S.
0: Thank you so much, Reena. This has been really fascinating chat.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Standard Issue. For all
1: women.